You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Large numbers of Americans unable to pay off loans for real estate bought at peak prices. Factories sending workers home. Thousands unemployed in major cities. Prestigious New York brokerage houses crumbling and dying in the space of a few weeks. Radical groups calling for action while auctions of land and property continue. Businesses unable to get the new credit they need to keep expanding. Stores advertising big sales while Congress debates and the president reassures the nation in soothing tones. It sounds a lot like 2009, but this describes many of the 19th century's economic crises, recessions, or, as one called them then, panics. Perhaps it should not be surprising. It was a nation conceived and dedicated in a time of recession, the period between the Treaty and Paris and the new constitution, the 1780s, were a time of economic trouble in which credit was hard to come by. Soldiers from the war were coming home unpaid, with farms ruined. Trade was complicated, currencies were depressed, and a new rebellion was started in the western part of Massachusetts and threatened in other areas of the country. In the 1790s, economics had improved with a better trade situation with foreign countries, and Hamilton's consolidation and assumption plan. Credit became available and the economy boomed, and the first bank of the United States led the charge. As demonstrated in the young Treasury Secretary Hamilton's plan, the $77 million that the new United States owed could be turned around and used, in a sense, as an asset. It could be bonded, along with state debt, into one credible instrument. These bonds would be backed by the new federal government's taxing ability and then could be traded or used as money. At the same time, so that this wasn't a total ruinous scheme, a sinking fund would be created that each year would set aside some funds to buy up some of these debt bond notes and reduce the debt load of the country. It was a perfect working machine. Daniel Webster, several years later, speaking of Hamilton's plan, said that not since the fabled birth of Minerva from the brain of Jove had anything its equal been conceived. The Jeffersonian Republicans, who saw the small farmer and not the big banker as the future of America, were not so thrilled with Hamilton's plan. And they would eliminate the bank when they took power after 1800 in their general downsizing of government. After the War of 1812, though, it became necessary to recharter the bank. And in 1816, they did, with a 20-year charter. The nation would have ups and downs, a mild setback in 1797, a drop when Jefferson ordered an embargo with England in 1807 that 
devastated the New England states and the seaports of the nation, but nothing on the scale of the Depression or today's crisis. Then came 1819. No one measured GDP in those days. There were no unemployment figures. So there were not the standard numerical ways that economists can make comparison between different times, between today's crisis and what happened then. Yet other descriptions, written descriptions, tell the story. A British traveler in 1819 said, Affairs are deranged here in the States. Agriculture product sits and languishes. Labors and mechanics in need of employment roam the countryside. I think I have seen upwards of 1,500 in my travels in quest of work, many without any money at all. Former President Thomas Jefferson, who lost a great deal of money co-signing loans for a friend, spoke of how real estate dropped in 1819. Land could be bought, he said, for the price of a year's rent. Real estate was a large player in what happened there in 1819. Land in the West, and at that point, the West was not California, but was Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana, western part of Tennessee. 3.5 million acres had been purchased by Americans. The overwhelming majority of them were purchased on loan from the federal government some in the minimum lot size of 160 acres. So long as farmers made money on the land, they could finance this debt. But in the 1810s, a series of misfortunes happened. Napoleon's final defeat in Waterloo in 1815 meant that Europe could stop fighting. Battlefields became farms once again, and Europe needed to import less agricultural product from the United States. At the same time, English goods that were stocked up in warehouses needed to find a market. And with the end of the Napoleonic War, they found their way to the United States, crippling the domestic markets for the same products and closing factories. And the War of 1812 and the subsequent government borrowing meant that banks didn't have gold reserves to pay what they owed. An additional factor in the crisis was the revolutions in Mexico and Peru, which made gold and silver harder to come by, which also helped to shrink the money supply. State banks had in the past inflated the currency with their own banknotes. But the Bank of the United States, which was rechartered in 1816, decided to curtail that practice and ask for more from the state banks in gold payments. Many banks started to fail. Along with it, the credibility of paper money. The nation had its first full depression. Cotton prices halved between 1818 and 1820. Land prices dived as land was sold to pay the called-in debts. The paper bubble has then burst, former President Jefferson wrote to his newly reestablished friend and pen pal, former President John Adams. This is not what you and I and every reasoning man seduced by no obliquity of mind or interest have long foreseen. There was outrage aimed at the financial community. In Massachusetts, a group sought to pass a new state constitution in 1820, giving the people more power and rejecting the debtor laws that were on the books. In Philadelphia, writer William Duane, editing the Aurora, 
attack the Bank of the United States. William Carroll, a war veteran from the 1812 war, defeated the governor of Tennessee solely on the anti-bank issue. Running against banks was good politics at this time. And it covered over other issues in America. Whether one supported slavery or abolition, everyone was against banks. Though William Duane in Philadelphia was a committed abolitionist, he would cite and support the pamphlets of a Virginia planter named John Taylor, who had predicted the collapse in 1814, five years before, in a one of his pamphlets, and was now writing pamphlets attacking banks. The president, James Monroe, did little directly, nor was he at the time expected to. In comments worthy of many optimistic presidents since, in the face of bad economies, he noted that prosperity is not to be seen in every interest of this great country. Quite an understatement. But there is generally much to rejoice in the felicity of our situation. Translation into 2009 speak, the fundamentals of our economy are strong. Madison rejected proposals for money relief programs or for public work programs from the federal government. But two laws were passed, the Relief Act and the Land Act of 1820, which did help to ease the debt load of those who bought land from the federal government. For one, they allowed Americans who were currently defaulting on their loans of Western properties to turn in the land back to the government and receive a credit for what they owed, substantially reducing their debt load, which would hopefully have the effect of encouraging them to go out and spend. And since part of what the government still wanted Americans to spend on was Western land, they also reduced the minimum acre size from 160 acres to 85 acres, smaller lots, reckoning that some of these folks could afford to buy a smaller piece of land and make those payments. It's the equivalent of allowing Americans to trade in their McMansion for a condo. And they would reloan even to some of those who had defaulted on the other loans. Very similar to some of the new banking products that are becoming available today. The federal government wasn't the only actor and not the most important actor in the economy at the time. States were also quite busy. In Vermont, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Ohio, and Maryland, debt relief laws were passed. The most common were what were called stay laws that stopped or slowed the collection of debts. Obviously, banks didn't like these laws, but they didn't have good public relations at this time. There were also minimum appraisal laws, which forbid property from being sold at an extremely low price at an auction. And there was the removal in many states of the summary process for debt collection cases. Creditors had to now go and get a trial like everyone else. They couldn't go to the special quick court and only set up for debt collection and get their money. They had to wait in line at the courthouse. That was going to have the same effect as a stay law. Debtors were voters, increasingly in American, and states responded to them. 
But this was not a national program. And in some of the more pro-bank or places where banks were more influential, uh, states like New Jersey and New York, attempts to pass these kind of laws failed. By 1823, the Depression was easing and currency and credit began to become available again. Although widely condemned for restricting currency and ruining the country, the Bank of the United States would not need to be renewed until 1836, so its public approval rating didn't matter that much. A member of the board of the bank during the 1819 crisis, Philadelphia Nicholas Biddle, soon became head of the bank. At the same time, after failing in 1824, Andrew Jackson, the hero of the Battle of New Orleans, and a person whose political campaigns had been run on the anti-bank issue, would become president. A Western populist, he had no love for banks, seeing his friends ruined by them. The interchange between these two men, Biddle and Jackson, would cause a financial calamity. If the crisis of 2008 and 2009 seems amorphous, seems, seems like we have difficulty putting a face to the villains in the story, that is the complete opposite of what occurred in the Panic of 1834. It was a completely manufactured panic wholly the result of government actions and very personal, the result of a feud, a Biddle-Jackson slugfest. Today, there is some mini-politics between Fed chairs and presidents. Presidents would like them to lower rates quite often. Fed chairs want their independence and want to hold down inflation. Volcker and Reagan had some disputes. Greenspan and George W. Bush Sr. had the same. But it's below the radar, small stuff, not public battles. In 1832, as Andrew Jackson prepared for re-election, Nicholas Biddle, chairman of the Bank of the United States, was an ally of Henry Clay and would like to see the Kentucky senator in the presidency. So even though the Bank of the United States did not need to be rechartered until 1836, it had been chartered again in 1816 with a 20-year charter. Biddle decided to make it an issue. The bank was popular in the northern states for its impact on the economy, which was currently pretty good. And so Biddle decided to make a move that could help his friend Henry Clay. He asked for a recharter early, and a bill moved through both houses to recharter the bank in 1832. Now, they challenged Old Hickory to veto the bill. President Jackson called their bluff. He did veto the bank bill and issued a statement, which to the surprise of Clay, Biddle, and bank supporters, the average people supported, replete as it was with statements against banks and for the average people. The issue became actually a boon to President Jackson's re-election. He would defeat Clay, and in his next term, with the bank now having lost its charter, he instructed his treasury secretary to remove deposits that the government was sending to banks. The idea behind the Bank of the United States is that it would collect the tax revenues and then issue the government money as it needed. Nice little arrangement. 
Just as Biddle's action, getting involved in a presidential election, was extraordinary, especially as we view it in modern times, the thought of a modern-day president removing funds from the Federal Reserve would seem incomprehensible. Jackson's first Treasury Secretary refused to remove the deposits, thinking that it would lead to a failure in business confidence and certainly a panic. Jackson fired him and replaced him with his friend Roger Taney, a man who would later become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Taney immediately began removing the funds. The Bank of the United States, as we indicated, received tax uh, monies and then allowed the government to draw upon it for its operations. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Jackson's plan was to slowly remove deposits from the bank, use the deposit money to pay for operations of the federal government now, and then, as the government collects tax revenue, Instead of sending it to the Bank of United States in Philadelphia for future needs, he would send these funds to state banks all across the nation. Opponents ridiculed the bank plan, calling these state banks pet banks. And indeed, only bankers that committed some support of Jacksonian Democrats were going to be supplied with money from this new scheme. Still, Jackson moved forward. And it was intensely personal. We'll kill this monster. Mr. Biddle and his bank will be harmless as a lamb in six weeks, Jackson wrote to his new vice president, Van Buren. But Biddle wouldn't back down either. This worthy president thinks that because he has scalped Indians and imprisoned judges, he is to have his way with this bank. He is mistaken, Biddle told friends. Biddle used the Bank of the United States' best weapon against Jackson. He cut off loans and restricted exchange bills, which would reduce what the state banks all across the nation could lend. Now, some banks would be getting money from the federal government through Jackson's program, but it was a slow process. So at a time when business had been expanding, banks now reduced loans by $5.5 million. Business began to shrink. At the same time, Congress, led by Henry Clay, got busy. The Senate demanded that the Treasury Secretary hand over the list of banks that the government was now supporting. When Jackson refused, citing executive privilege, Clay went to war. The Senate censured Jackson by a vote of 26 to 20. When Jackson protested the censure, they rejected his protest by a similar margin. Meanwhile, the economy was hurting from this battle. Merchants in New York are in great distress, the son of Alexander Hamilton wrote. Bankruptcy is almost general, said future President John Tyler. A great desponding among the trading ports of the people, Henry Clay described. When a group of senators went to Jackson in April 1834 and asked for relief, he exploded. Go to Biddle, he said. He is hoarding the money in the basement of his bank. 
Henry Clay was enjoying every minute. In a speech in the floor of Congress, he made the first reference to the party of the Whigs, the anti-Jackson forces, opposing the man they referred to as King Andrew. His tone got so personal that he said the president's head ought to be examined by phrenologists. It was a bloody war, but Clay was benefiting. The opposition was gaining. Democrats were starting to vote in some cases with the Whigs. And independent congressmen were siding with Henry Clay's opposition. The Whig Party would make gains in various elections across the country. And in the last session in the Senate, they would deny the president's friend Roger Taney's appointment as Treasury Secretary, as well as some other appointments. But that was in the Senate, which Clay controlled at this time. In the House, the organ that controls the money, removal actions that the Treasury Secretary was undertaking would be approved, and the bank's charter would be ended. Biddle had won the battle, but lost the war. By the spring, he was forced by the other directors of the Bank of the United States to resume loaning out to the state banks and to businesses all around the country, and recovery resulted by the summer of that year. A country of business, a country born at the same time as the Industrial Revolution. The history of America is one of boom and bust, it seems. Great booms, the 20s, the late 90s, the post-Civil War period, the early days of the Republic, and great busts. Most notably, in our memories and our knowledge, the Great Depression, the Panic of 1893, and 1819. The series of little busts, recessions we might say, 1797, 1808, the aforementioned 1834, 1907, 1920, We definitely had them in 1973, 1979 going into 80, 1980 going into 81, 1982, the so-called Reagan recession utilized by Democrats in that congressional midterm, 1990 going into 91, which helped to sink the presidential re-election of uh, George H.W. Bush Sr., 2001 going into 2003 recession and leading up to today. Recessions are common. There's no direct pattern. You can't say they happen every five years in American history. They appear in spurts, such as the one in 1979, followed almost immediately by one in 80 and 81, with a small recovery in between each. Or they could be separated by wide gaps. They are random. Sometimes there are easy factors to see, such as the battle between Biddle and Jackson in 1834. But other times, there are myriad factors, and it's hard to parse. We don't even know a solid reason for the Great Depression, though we can see several indications. When the speculation in real estate and the acceleration of mortgages in 2007 to 2008, many partisans said this is the result of a failed president. Some politics could be connected, and the correlation of a presidency humbled by the Iraq War and the Katrina disaster, and with low approvals to begin with, it was inevitable that the bad economy would be linked to the current president. And certainly nothing new. When Jackson left the presidency in 1837, 
and his vice president, Martin Van Buren, took over, the economy again collapsed. Henry Clay remarked, This is the result of a nation subjected to the iron will of one man who endangered our liberties. But was it really? The country that Van Buren had taken over was expanding rapidly. This was the beginning of a new entity in American life, the railroad, the voice of the 19th century, as Ralph Waldo Emerson called it. Land sales went from 1.9 million in 1830 to 12.9 million in 1837. And in the time, 347 new banks were chartered. Great wealth on paper, criticized many. But just as Van Buren took office, a worldwide depression occurred. English banks and Irish banks needed money, and they called on loans that they had made to American banks and demanded the payment in gold. This contracted loans. The Americans were busy paying off English and Irish banks. They couldn't loan out that much money. The result was disastrous. The New Orleans cotton market collapsed. Domestic exchanges in New York were bankrupt. The price of gold went up and there were runs on New York banks. It happened at a bad political time. Unlike James Monroe, who would be re-elected almost unanimously in 1820 while the country was suffering, Van Buren would be blamed for it. Whigs would seek to restore the Bank of the United States and make that their issue in the election of 1840. Twenty years after the disaster that ruined the man from old Kinderhook and his political chances, America was in expansive mood again. Railroads were bringing settlers farther and farther west. Ohio, Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, the states that had made up the west at the time of the 1819 crash were now established states. The frontier was in Kansas and Nebraska, Railroads were starting at a fever pace, stirred by investor money and free-loaning banks. Land in faraway Omaha, Nebraska, that went for $500 a lot, now sold for $5,000. The amount of banks tripled between 1850 and 1857, a pattern that we saw in the previous crashes. In May 1857, some New England textile mills reported that they had to shut down their looms. There was just a little less demand. Shipping was reduced, and shippers were selling their services for less and less. The Bank of France demanded that the Bank of England pay its loans in gold. They did this by selling their American stocks. The Ohio Trust Company, one of the major firms in New York, went under in August of 1857. It was followed by the Bank of Pennsylvania, Many banks in New York and New England had runs on them. The fall of 1857 was gloomy. Almost every store in New York City has placards announcing great sacrifice, vast reduction in prices, sales at less than cost, wrote the man who would future become, in the future would become mayor of New York, George Templeton Strong. They notify the universe that the store will be open until 9 p.m. Charles Francis Adams would marvel 
at how the 57 collapse had been even worse than the one 20 years before, ruining Boston's top families. Beacon Street, those who would weld a great influence over our state in the last 30 years, they will now welcome a new set of occupants. A former military officer would pawn his gold watch in order to get Christmas presents for his kid. His name was Ulysses S. Grant. In Wisconsin, Carl Schultz, a Republican leader, would note how barter was being used for most transactions there. Over 20,000 people would be thrown out of work in 1857 in a 14-day period in New York. But still a proposal from Mayor Fernando Wood to institute relief in the city was rejected. But the city did hire thousands of unemployed workers to assist with Central Park. Jefferson Davis, a senator from Mississippi now, blamed the extravagance of New York and its speculation in railroads and banks for the crisis. President Buchanan would see little solution at the national level. No one had thought of anything like national relief or a new deal. The Washington-era newspaper called ideas of such work programs or relief European ideas with a flavor of communism. All Buchanan insisted on was that using hard money instead of paper money would solve the crisis. Eventually, by the end of 1858, the panic had subsided and the nation focused on the conflict that would lead to the Civil War. Crisis had some degree of influence on that, as Southerners sought to expand into new territories to restore losses. It would be hard to imagine that the man who had to pawn his watch in the last crisis would, through a unique set of circumstances, go from being an average laborer to a low-ranking officer to leader of Union forces and hero of the Union, becoming eventually a president of the United States. Grant's first term featured a good economy and improvements in reconstruction in the South and the curtailing of some of the Klan groups there. But his second term was plagued by scandal and financial collapse, as many New York brokerage houses collapsed, including the one of his friend, Jay Cook. What at first seemed to be a limited crisis only in New York City would be revealed to be a wider recession, and then a depression, the Panic of 1873, and there was a clamor for relief. Congress proposed an inflation bill to put $400 million worth of greenbacks, or paper dollars, into circulation. Grant refused. He vetoed the legislation, saying it would cause inflation, high prices, and ruin. And the Congress was unable to overcome Grant's veto. The economic hardship would last well into the next year, and Grant's party, the Republicans, would suffer defeat in the 1874 congressional midterms. Republicans would lose the House for the first time since the Civil War. Twenty years later, when President Grover Cleveland faced an economic catastrophe, he would also refuse any kind of government action and would make every effort to block inflation of the currency. Both Grant and Cleveland saw hard money as the solution. McKinley would be the beneficiary uh, President William McKinley would be the beneficiary of a boom 
as the new century was ushered in. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And the economy under the young President Theodore Roosevelt, who would take over after McKinley's assassination, would be pretty rosy for most of the first decade of the the 20th century, until triggered by payments, uh, triggered by insurance claims from the San Francisco earthquake, several New York brokerage houses and insurance firms would collapse with a domino effect occurring and the panic of 1907 set in. As we look at the panics of the past, a few things are apparent. In every case, there was some amount of speculation and expansion of credit, adding the proverbial fuel to the fire. Railroads were the speculation engines of the 19th century. In the 20th century, before the Great Depression, there was an expansion in radios and in automobiles, which created new things to invest in. But it's not easy to see when a bubble is going on or when it might burst. These things are easier to see with hindsight. Experts were talking about a bubble in 2004, 2005, and 2006 in the housing markets, and it really took until late 2007 to prove them right. And experts are no better at predicting when there are going to be booms. Governments and industries both have an incentive to always predict robust growth. And so speculation continues, even as some fear it, It's fueling jobs and expansion, and it's hard to deny. In the early days, economic speculation also had the added benefit of fueling the exploring of the West and the development of the United States. In the panics of 1819 and 1837 and 1857, the number of people who got involved in speculative investments increased. Just as in 1929, where the average housewife or shoeshiner was buying up stocks. In 1857, it was common for individuals to have railroad stocks. And in 1819, many were buying Ohio land. There seems to have been in these crises limited government intervention. Outside of the post office, the government employed few people. 
And it wasn't possible for a New Deal, nor was it possible uh, in the philosophy of those times. With the exception of James Monroe, who came from a nonpartisan era, who had a unique political situation and was re-elected uh, despite the economy, most presidents have suffered if they were unlucky enough to be president during a bust economy. Van Buren, Hoover, Carter, Bush Sr., they would suffer from the pocketbook vote. But in all four cases, it's difficult to put all the blame on these presidents. It's tempting to go through the situations we examined in the 19th century, that of 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, and see that they improved uh, without any kind of New Deal-like program or any stimulus packages, maybe with some minor solutions from state and federal governments, uh, and to draw the conclusion that we can just let these busts go and the economy will eventually rebound. After all, at some point, at some point, banks received enough money back in payment that they feel they can loan again. At some point, people can only hold on to their old clothes, their old automobiles, their old items so long and have to buy new ones stirring demand. There must be some natural cycle. But that raises two questions. Does government have the need to be more palliative and to help during the time when things are rough? We view that differently now than they did in the 19th century. And secondly, can government action do more than just be palliative, relieving the symptoms? Can government action actually shorten the crisis? While the 1857 crisis would be improved by the fall of 1858, the 1819 one would really take a good four years, during which time people were suffering. The 1873 crisis was still having an impact on the economy well into the presidential term of Rutherford B. Hayes. Probably didn't improve until 1878. During that time, fortunes were ruined. Families were ruined. Same was true in the Panic of 1893. President Cleveland uh, did not see federal government intervention as any part of the crisis. And that depression continued and was a factor in the 1896 election. And it was not to the beginning of McKinley's term, 1897-1898, that the economy would really see recovery. This financial crisis in 2008 truly to me represents the first time that from moment one, the government was on the scene, responding uh, like a fire department to the crisis. Uh, that was certainly not true in the time of the Great Depression, where it occurred uh, 1929 going into 1930, beginnings of the true economic uh, depression from the stock market crash and other factors. Government was not involved as a player until 1933 when Franklin Roosevelt took office. In this crisis, you saw immediately, not even waiting for the new administration, there were some steps taken by the previous administration, the TARP program, financing of the auto companies in an attempt to keep the economy propped up as well as actions by the Federal Reserve. So it'll be in this crisis where we'll really see whether government intervention is a factor, or at least have a new set of data to measure that. The examination of the panics of the 19th century, relating them to the current crisis, is ambiguous about what the solution should be, whether a stimulus program or New Deal-type program, jobs program, etc., can benefit. They weren't done in the 19th century, so it's impossible to see 
what happened then. But they do point to the government being more of an actor before the crises occur. In each case, even in the early days of America, the bust period in the economy was absolutely correlated with a period of robust speculation. Americans were allowed to borrow too much to buy Western lands in 1819. Banks were allowed to produce too much paper money. In 1857, there was too much leveraged buying of Western land, just as it occurred in 1837. Railroad stocks were being used as collateral for buying more and more Western land. So you had an instrument that wasn't really all that secure, securing a loan. But then it's difficult to imagine any government, be it in the 19th century or now, to be able to do the right thing when times are good. Should we pin our hopes idly that in a boom period, someone is going to enter the stage and say, no, this speculation must stop? They'd be shouted down by other forces operating. No, I don't think it's realistic that in the time of speculation anything will occur to curb it unless it's established previously as a mechanism. And this we have seen in the past. In 1907, after that crisis, the Federal Reserve System was established. While it didn't work eventually, over time it got better at helping to control the economy to an extent. After the Great Depression, we established programs like unemployment insurance, Social Security, with help to put money in the economy, no matter what the private sector is doing, and program like the FDIC, which is still very useful. We established the Securities and Exchange Commissions. It is during the time of these crises when mechanisms and legislation must be established that can correct the extravagances of the future. In the late 90s, when the Glass-Steagall laws, which essentially prevented banks from getting into speculative investments, this was a Depression-era legislation that sought to put banks back in the business of simply taking deposits and lending out money, what banks were supposed to do, and not getting into uh, aggressive speculation. When that was repealed, many uh, people labeled it as a Depression-era law in an attempt and this was during the boom period of the late 1990s, to make it seem small, to make it seem ridiculous. It was a Depression-era law. Why shouldn't we repeal it? Repealing that law has gone a long way to lead to some of the extravagances of the current crisis. We should be very wary of such statements. So while I'm not hopeful that during a boom period would be the time to launch a new mechanism of regulation, I do think we can, at the very least, resist attempts to repeal the old mechanisms. That should be carefully guarded. I don't think Jefferson was proven right that paper money was on its face a true evil. Credit is important for business today, just as it was for the founding of the nation. A hard money policy would be devastating. There'd be no way for businesses to grow in the way we need to keep everyone employed. But given that boom and bust is so common... In American history, aggressive speculation in one period really means that you're taking to some extent from the prosperity of the future. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, 
former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.